Welcome to The Money Huddle, a podcast that explores financial topics for families and small business owners. Hosted by Michael Baker and Ross Marinell. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ross or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and may not reflect the opinions of Planners Alliance. The podcast recording is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Planners Alliance may maintain positions and securities discussed on the program. It's no secret uh, for those of us who know us that that Ross and I both love sports and we, we talk about sports a good bit. Um, right now, the NBA is is uh, going, and I have to say, I'm taking a little bit of a little bit of pleasure in the Tell demise the demise of LeBron James and the Lakers. I'm just playoff hopes are fading fast. I'm just not a big LeBron James fan. I mean, I respect I respect the athletic ability, all that. Just just not the biggest fan. Of course, I grew up in Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was the basketball king of my generation, and, and I will not move off of MJ being the greatest of all time. Uh, we can debate that later. But, um, you know, obviously one of the things we talk about sometimes in the office is these massive contracts that these athletes can sign to go and play. And it's always interesting because, you know, sometimes we know like, well, if they go play here, they don't play, you know, pay state income tax and another thing. So it's always interesting to kind of sort through how these deals get structured. But the latest one is from a gentleman named Bryce Harper. And Let's you, hear it. Do you what know was his Bryce, deal? Do you know who Bryce is? I know he plays for the, the Washington Nationals. <laughs> he played for the Washington Nationals. Right. So now he is he is the newest member of the Philadelphia Phillies. And Philadelphia has decided to cough up. $330 million over a 13-year period. Wow. Um, and, you know, he's, of course, going to win them. How many World Series rings during this time? You know, I don't know. I, I just pulled up his stats. He batted 249 last year. Seems oh. like a lot of money, but, hey, what do I know? <laughs> wow. 249. Uh, I don't know either. I mean, you know, I guess they obviously see the potential, so um, they're doing it. So, anyway, um, that, there what – piqued my interest on the story was and this is a storyline that i've seen before was there was an article written by the new york post and it said bryce harper's contract so it's a 13-year contract long deal bryce harper's contract will not out outlast the mets's bobby bonilla payments and so that got me back to thinking about bobby bonilla day because you've heard about bobby bonilla day i love bobby bonilla day oh it's so hilarious so anyway for those of you who don't know um, July, I think it's July one, right? That's right. July 1st every year is called Bobby Bonilla day. And the reason it's called Bobby Bonilla day is the Mets on that day. Every year they pay Bobby Bonilla $1.19 million. <laughs> and they're going to do that all the way to year 2035. This a- is, it's a total of 25 payments that started back in what? It started a few years ago. It started in, um, I think, 2011. Okay, 2011. That's July right. July 1, 2011 is when the when the payout started. So here's how here's how it all came to play. And so I started going down this rabbit hole, right? So the Mets they they wanted to buy out Bobby Bonilla's contract, right? So he had they they had a 5.9 million dollar buyout that they wanted to do for him in the year 2000. And they structured this deal like it was a deferred buyout. Okay. So in a sense that what that means is that the, the, the team is going to pay you, but they're going to pay you in the future. They're not going to pay you right now. Right. 
the Mets ownership or whoever structured the deal for them, they they basically agreed to an eight percent interest rate on five point nine million, and they weren't going to start payments until July twenty eleven. One point one nine million a year to twenty thirty five. Okay, right. So if you're listening, that you're thinking they gave him eight percent interest on his money. Why did they do that? And I thought, okay, the same thing. Like that's incredible. Well, the Mets own. I found another article on ESPN that said that their his agent Dennis Gilbert was an insurance agent at the same time he began developing into. So this guy, the agent understood deferred annuities, right? Like he understood how powerful like deferred income could be. <laughs> so he go, he should be in the hall of fame for structuring this for Bobby. Right. But then this is where it really got crazy. So why would they do this? Well, the ownership, um, the, the guys at the, I guess they may still own the team or not. I don't know the, the will ponds, they invested their money with a gentleman named Bernie Madoff. Oh, this is an unbelievable. So in their mind, Bernie Madoff was getting them 12 to 15% oh. a year, which we now know was garbage. I mean, it was made up returns. So they're thinking, okay, we'll give you eight because we're getting 12 to 15. <laughs> Bobby Bodia took up to the cleaners, man. Hey, he hit a home run. So, all right. So they were supposed to pay him $5.9 million for the 2000 season. They agreed to suspend, basically defer that income to 2011. Right. And then he gets paid a total. So it's $1.1 million a year, but he's going to get paid out $29.8 million in deferred payments. Right. That's a fantastic arrangement. It's so my favorite part of the whole thing. <laughs> my favorite part. So Bobby Bonilla, this contract is with the New York Mets. Right. Where does Bobby Bonilla live now? Well, he there. lives in Florida. So there's no state income tax uh, on his money getting paid. I'm telling you, Bobby Benia Day, national holiday for financial advisors. Oh. I'm so folks, if you ever if you ever wanna just like a microcosm of, of the impact of like making sound financial choices could be and bringing in an advisor that knows what they're doing for certain situations, this is it. Because here's his agent, right? who had a background in insurance and when the Mets approached them on like this buyout because Bobby Bonilla, he used to be an all-star. So he right. had, he had money. Like he had money from playing right. baseball. He had the capacity to defer that income. Right. And so that's what his, that's what his agent obviously convinced him to do is say, Hey, listen, you're going to spend your money, but here's what's going to happen. In, in 10 years, they're going to start paying you out $1.1 million a year, and they're going to do that for 25 years. So we see this. How about that for a pension right. in retirement? We see this quite a bit, too. It just kind of triggers my brain is um, you know, a lot of folks that have cash balance pension plans, they have a choice right at retirement. What do we do? Do we take the lump sum of that cash balance pension right. plan, roll it into some type of tax deferred IRA mm -hmm. and, and invest it and try and grow that wealth? Or do we take the systematic income payments? Right. And a lot of times the, the, the sort of knee jerk reaction is take the money and roll it over. However, that's not necessarily the right thing to do in all situations because sometimes those income payouts, as Bobby Benia can explain, can be quite rewarding and quite high compared to the cash balance pension 
balance. So yeah. it really is, the, the, it, sh- it should always be evaluated in the context of what you need from your plan, but also just the impact of that income. Well, I was just say, this guy hasn't looked at a fastball in years and he's still getting paid over a million dollars a year. That's amazing. So, you know, I would say this, um, athletes, you know, there's all, you know, there, there, there's always benefits, right. You know, in weighing the pros and cons and and looking at a situation, but sometimes it's, it's absolutely worth it to consider deferring some money out to the future, you know, because you never know what's going to happen. Life can happen, you know? Um, and, and so anyway, I thought that was an amazing story. And so this, this July 1st, uh, we'll have a Bobby Bonilla day celebration here at the office. I'm going to buy a Mets hat, but I'm going to wear it to work that day. <laughs> just, just in honor of Bobby Bonilla and this fantastic arrangement. Right. All right. So moving on, you, I think you brought in something about, um, the, the mysterious lottery winner here yeah, in South so Carolina. This was, this was pretty interesting in, in relative to our South Carolina listeners. So, uh, there was the $1.5 billion Mega Millions uh, winner from yeah. the October 2018 can, drawing. Can you say that number again? Oh. $1.5 billion. This With was the B. largest yeah. single winning ticket uh, in the history of Mega Millions. And they waited. So you have 180 days to claim the prize. And they were around day 130 or mm-hmm. some odd. So the, the anxiousness was starting to build to see if anyone was actually going to claim it. Oh, you know what they're going to do. They, they had to talk to some, some professionals about how to get this money. They got some help, and good for them because that's a lot of money to, to receive. And so um, it, was, it was announced just the other day that uh, they did claim the ticket, and they elected the cash option one-time payment of $877 million, largest jackpot payout to a single winner in the United States history. It's insane. The state of South Carolina is going to pocket. I think I saw about sixty-one million dollars in state income tax. So I for think the you saw. You might have fund. seen the same article I did because I got I got a little tickled when I when I read that because they were interviewing the South Carolina person and they were like, "We're delighted that they came forward." And it's like, "Yeah, they're going to because they're going to owe the state of South Carolina sixty million dollars." There, there is definitely a nice windfall for the state. We're all for it. Uh, if that could help keep our South Carolina taxes down, that would be great. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating. So one of the things that, that was discovered was uh, this this person explaining their um, their day that day, how they got to right. that store to do that uh, to to buy that ticket, and in fact uncovered that. Uh, this person had let someone else go in front of them mm-hmm. to buy a Mega Millions ticket, and the gentleman, who, the person who won, I don't know, uh, did a quick pick. So think about that. Had they had they not let that person cut in front right. and buy that ticket, then someone else might have won that that oh, prize. That's pretty. That's pretty incredible. When you look back at it, you're like, wow. Talk about just a shot in the dark. So this got me thinking about it's such a large number. It started to get me thinking about how much income does a family need to sort of optimize just happiness, mm-hmm. right? And so I started and I got into a, a happiness uh, rabbit hole. Yeah, uh, they say money won't make you happy, but everybody wants to find out for themselves. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what uh, Les Brown always says. So I came across a couple of really interesting uh, people that that cover this, and so one of the gentlemen is named Daniel Gilbert. He is a the Department of Psychology 
uh, professor at Harvard University. Mm-hmm. And another study that I found uh, was from uh, Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton. So we know uh, yeah. Daniel Kahneman in the financial world. Sure. And they wrote a really interesting study that said high income improves evaluation of life, but not necessarily emotional well-being. So in, in kind of just to break that down a little bit, basically they're stating, you know, the more income you make, maybe the more you look back at your legacy and your status and, and kind of appreciate your accomplishments, but it doesn't necessarily translate into happiness. Right. And so they did a study to kind of figure out what level of income do you need to maximize your happiness in for the state of South Carolina. Do you know what it came back at? I'm going to guess 70,000. It's right around seventy to seventy-five thousand. Yeah. Now okay. they they adjust it for cost of living. So if you're in a high cost state like California or DC or New York, you've got to make more than that. But in South Carolina, mm-hmm. to maximize happiness, seventy to seventy-five thousand dollars. That was the figure. Yeah. No, I mean that's. You know, I think that a lot of people think it's you know the more the more money the more money you make you know, the, the, just that this happiness curve, right. This continuum just continue, like you're happier and happier, the more and more income you make. And, and what studies like this are kind of show is that there is a little bit of a ceiling, right. To, to, you know, not, not to say that, Hey, if you're, if you're rolling in the dough that, that you're unhappy, it's just that, you know, they're, they're, there come, you know, you get the, the law of diminishing returns, if you will. It's like, it starts to plateau, once you get over this certain amount. Is that right? So uh, Daniel Gilbert had uh, a statement that he made in, in one of the presentations that I, that I watched of his, and he said, relating to money, you know, a little buys a lot, but a lot buys a little more. So a little buys a lot, and a lot buys little more. That's mm-hmm. kind of, that's the core. I thought that was kind of neat. So there, right. what his findings were was basically, you know, if you're at a low income level and you can jump to middle middle income, mm-hmm. that's that's a degree of, ha- that's a big shift in happiness. Oh yeah. But going from sort of the middle income to a high income, it's just not as impactful. Right. Now, I mean, you get to, you know, probably have more discretionary income, maybe, but it's just saying like on your, on your internal well-being, your happiness, it does, it, it does, there's not as big of a jump from middle to high as there is from low to middle. Is that right? Exactly. And another point he made is that you know, a lot of times happiness is basically just sort of the definition, getting what we want. But, um, he's also says the, your mind is basically your sort of a prisoner of the present. So, um, we sort of imagine things as being good or bad, but we sort of overestimate how good things will be. And we also can overestimate how bad things will be if we have a tragedy in life Yeah, and that the reality doesn't always pan out. Oh, I'm with you. No, man. So, um, that, that's always something to keep in mind, you know, especially in, in this age where we, we are very, it's, it's human nature to want to compare yourself to other folks. And, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I, I'm starting to see actually with my kids is, you know, them comparing, you know, who's got what, and, you know, I've got this, you you don't have this in your house, Dave, (laughs) you've got two girls. So no, but I mean, you know, we'll, you know, there was a story I was thinking about um, writing about the other day and it was, you know, both my, my daughter and my son, you know, I was watching them at a table and they were both coloring and they started to get into a debate about who had what markers, 
you know, and like there's this big, bo- huge bowl of right. like markers in the middle of the table. There's markers, more markers than they could possibly use in, in one sitting. But it was about who had what. And they were looking at, well, I, I want this one and you got that one. And they were starting to get into that back and forth. You know, and of course, you know, I go in as a parent and say, guys, you know, there's plenty of markers for everybody. And I think, you know, um, that made me think about this kind of topic is, you know, how we get caught up in looking at other people like who are running their race instead of focusing on our race, we start focusing on other people running their race. And it's like, look, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Cause you don't know what's what, you know, what the water bill is. You don't know what's going on over there. Right. Right. It, well, and this is kind of the impact we've talked about this before, just sort of the impact of social media and this oh, yeah. ideal that, everyone is living this wonderful life. We share the greatest stories on Facebook and we don't always turn around and show the other side of that. And it can create, you know, increased depression with young folks. And and so it's kind of all kind of goes in hand. And uh, I thought that was interesting that on the, on the heels of someone claiming the largest ticket, um, they're probably only going to be incrementally happier than you. So it depends on what their status was before they won that lottery ticket uh, the impact that it's going to have on their lives, but it may be less than they think. Well, the one thing, the one thing they did that probably the smartest thing they did out of the gate was they chose to remain anonymous. So great decision. So they, at least they, at least are stepping out on the right track with that. So, um, I got another article for us to talk about. And it, again, it's our, it's our old familiar friend, um, financial literacy. And so uh, this article, um, I just saw it for the first time earlier this week. It uh, looks like it was published uh, March 2nd, but it's, uh, you know, the title of the article is Financial Literacy, An Epic Fail in America. And lacking, lacking the skills needed to make informed financial decisions hurts individuals and the economy. And what can advisors do to help? So the, the, the story starts with a tale about a young man named Zachary Beneda. I think that's how you say his name. And his dream of joining the Air Force was Zachary uh, as a 23-year-old senior at Texas A&M, okay. um, he's going to be going uh, into he's going into the Air Force when he graduates from Texas A&M, and this is where it just already a paragraph in it goes south for me because it it says he gets a rude awakening when he realizes he's going to have to start paying back ninety thousand dollars in college loans. Ooh. So he is going to have to pay get this a thousand dollars a month about half of his monthly salary as a second lieutenant. And here's the thing. He says, I was floored. I thought the military was going to take care of me and the burden wouldn't be as bad. I wasn't worrying about the loans as much as I should have. Wow. How, how often, I mean, do we hear this story, right? Where, you know, you got, you got, you got a young kid, um, you know, going to college, and they're taking on these loans. They're signing, you know, they're, they're in the financial aid offices. They're signing on the dotted line. We both know that there's no way this kid got $90,000 in loans without probably some parental help. Right. So probably mom and dad have signed on some plus loans. Right. right to, to get this guy uh, through school. Now he, I mean, he's going into the military, which is going to be stable employment. But $90,000 in debt right out of the gate. We've talked about like not having a mortgage. So it's a mountain of debt. This is again, like the same thing over and over and over again. And it's not just about student loans. It's just about the overall financial literacy in our country. And I mean, he's, he was saying, 
you know, his story was really bad because he, I think he was saying that, you know, he's like the first of three kids and his mom and dad, they, they didn't really like prep him for that. He's like, he, he feels like he was the trial run, like, right. you know, so, um, I don't know how I feel about that, but anyway, I feel bad for him because, you know, that's going to take a chunk of his money. But here's what it said uh, in the article. It talked about um, the USA, uh, the Americans. It says, so obviously we're the world's largest economy. Um, and however, it, we are ranked um, 14th when measuring proportion of the adults in the country that are considered to be financially literate. So it says to put that in perspective, um, adult financial literacy at 57% in the United States is only slightly higher than that of Botswana, which is whose economy is 1,127% smaller. Wow. So that's, that's using some extreme statistics, but I started looking at this, you know, as far as like GDP per capita. And so like, you know, we're, you've got, we're right there. Singapore, um, has, um, GDP per capita is similar to the United States. They're at 59%. But I started looking at, you know, some of the other countries like New Zealand has a higher um, literacy rate than us. So New Zealand, Belgium, you know, these Israel, Germany. I mean, all these countries, I mean, they have higher, they're much smaller economies, but they have a higher literacy rate, which is, is somewhat alarming. And so I just want to throw that and get your thoughts on it. Well, it's something that we need to start talking about in classrooms earlier and really make a focus of just education. So really in high school, we've got to start incorporating financial literacy programs and get kids thinking about yeah. how much um, debt they may be taking on in the very short short term going through college, what the loan payments are, are looking like. And I think it's easier to take on the debt and just think about the balance. Well, it's $30,000 for, for college or it's mm-hmm. 40000 for college, but we don't think about the after effect of, well, actually that means $400 a month. And if your income is three grand, that's a pretty sizable portion of your gross income. Right. And start thinking about it in terms of your, your expected income versus the amount of, you know, re- monthly debt you'll have to pay, repay like right. the gentleman that you just talked about. I mean, a $90,000 loan balance in his situation equated to about a thousand dollar a month payment. If we start talking in terms of that, I think, it yeah. helps people make a decision. Oh, I, I could not agree more. And I think, you know, there was obviously the or, the article written touched on multiple things. You know, it talked about um, credit cards. You know how you, you know, a lot of kids when they when they, you know, your parents may warn you about the the perils of having a credit card, but then you know once your once your kids go to school, they go to college. If they especially if they go to to campus and they live away from home. You know, there's constantly credit card vendors on campus coming in. And there, there was a story here where a girl was talking about, you know, um, c- credit card companies will show up and they'll give you vouchers for free pizza if you'll fill out, you know, you know, right. and, and they're, you know, these, these things are um, at least how they credit cards used to work is they, they know that these are students. So they're not getting generally out of the bat. They're not getting approved for a lot of credit. You know, it might be really low, like a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars. But, but we already know too, is like, once you start, once you make a few payments and you pay on time, what do they do? Right. Start increasing your they credit, increase limits credit and, limit. Um, well, know? we're asking young adults to make really seismic financial decisions without the proper preparation in some cases, which is, you know, we're asking someone, you know, some of these children are going to borrow 
as much as you know where I paid for my first house. Right. And the the ease at which some of these decisions can be made and the pressure even from from just society to say, all right, we need to, you need to get a college degree and you got to go oh, to this yeah. next level. And before you know, before you know it, you look back and there's ninety thousand dollars in student loan debt and it may be 10, 10, 15 years of really tough budgeting to get that paid. Yeah. So the article, I mean, it, it highlighted several things, one of which that, you know, being in the state of South Carolina, it said there's one third, one third of the states right now in the United States require some level of uh, personal finance course to be taken to graduate high school. South Carolina is not one of the states that requires that. Mm. So that doesn't really shock me. So we're, we're probably going to have to you know get on board um, here in South Carolina. But uh, the last thing I'll point out about the article that I thought was really telling and, and, and hopefully would be a good takeaway for anyone listening. So it talked about the financial services industry and the article essentially was geared toward what, you know, what can financial advisors do to help or, or you know, should advisors be more engaged mm-hmm. on this issue? And it said um, there's a, a section in here that talks about says marketing to ignorance. So the financial service industry engages in consumer education efforts, but the, that is dwarfed by the resources devoted to marketing its products. So the industry spends roughly $17 billion a year to market products and services, but only $670 million on education, according to a 2013 study by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So that's one study. You know, I'm sure people might disagree or you know want to refute it but here it says says, basically says that translates to for every one dollar towards education 25 dollars is spent toward marketing products right and so what do we always tell people we tell people all the times like we evaluate financial plans we don't evaluate products because so many transactions for people is based on a product sale it's like hey you know come in, I need some help. And it's like, can we sell you a product or we, we can sell you a better product than you want on now. And so many times it's like, people really just need to sit down and like do some financial planning and they need to like figure out what their actual goals are, you know, and where they're at today and like what type of adjustments or what type of steps need to be made so they can start working towards those goals. It's not just about like, Oh, here's a product sale. But but our industry apparently is very guilty of all the money is going into marketing. Right, products. the marketing is a turn on its head. Ah, it's so, an interesting study. Yeah, it's it spoke right to the core. So, um, you know, if you're listening, you know, I, our our industry uh, is full of of great people. I think we're it's full of people that want to do right. However, some of the business models in our in our industry are structured towards a transactional relationship, a sales based right. relationship. So we are big, big advocates of looking for people that want to help you plan first and then find the tools, find the strategies that make the most sense for you and your family. Um, we think that that is, that is a key. So thank you for listening. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you want to email us, uh, reach out to us, send us your thoughts and questions about the podcast. If there's a topic you'd like us to, to uh, cover on the show, don't hesitate to reach out and we'll talk to you next time.